I used to sit in the preschool in tears. All the man really has to do on the day of birth is find a good parking spot. <laughs> dad, Dad, catch this. Boom, I've done a poo. Stop stabbing your sister. From the news desk to the nursery. Mum! This is The Parent Panel with Siobhan Hunt. Our guests today are Amy Taylor-Kabaz, the voice that lulls your children to sleep on bedtime explorers and calms us down after you're revved up from the parent panel. <laughs> She's also a coach, author and founder of Happy Mama and Seamus Byrne, who's editor of Beyond at Science Alert. And as far as parental experience goes, Amy has three children and Seamus has two. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good to be here. Before we start... Kindling does have a pretty massive week coming up um, because we have a week of sleep. I know that sounds like we're all just not going to do any work and snooze at our desks. But in fact, we've got lots of great new content. And Amy, you have contributed to that. I sure have. We've got new episodes of Bedtime Explorers. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we get cracking? Yes, it's so exciting. We, I have been getting so many emails for so long, and I know you have too. When is the next episodes coming out. This is, for those who don't know, the Bedtime Explorers Meditations at Nighttime to help little ones go to sleep, but also learn some really key mindfulness techniques and self-confidence and just to really help them have some tools in life. And we've created 10 new episodes and they drop, I guess is the word, I, I keep in the lingo. The word drop, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I it's use, the podga- podcast lingo, isn't I it? I use drop. Just don't try to use in a, some kind of metaphor with babies because I've done that and it just doesn't oh, no, work not, out no, well. We're not going to mm. drop any babies, I promise. No. <laughs> <laughs> they drop on Monday. <laughs> they drop on Monday. And are all um, 10 going to be available at once? Um I actually, um, one a day, Elise is mouthing at me through from I the control it room. One it's a one, day. one a night, actually, yes. which is so exciting because then the kids can be like all excited when they go to bed. To listen and this to time, one. the adventure that we're going on every night is around an animal. So if you have any kids in your household like mine who have a particular animal they love or they love to play those role playing games, they're going to love these ones. I can't wait. Okay, so let's get stuck into the parent panel. Today we're talking about my health record because uh, I'm still working out what to do, so I'm just going to ask Seamus and Amy what they're doing (laughs) and hopefully they'll give me some good advice. We're also talking about playdate etiquette. How do you discipline another parent's child if you need to? When your rooms are bursting with toys, how do you control your children's toy intake and your worst best-intentioned cooking disaster. Let's get cracking with our first topic. Are you opting out of My Health Record? So My Health Record is intended as an online database for you to store documents relating to you or your child's health. When you sign up for a My Health Record, you're given the chance to sign up to upload about two years' worth of Medicare or prescription data as well as details about immunizations and maybe your choices around organ donation. So that's just some of the data that might be in there. That's Ariel Bogle from the ABC talking to us on Kindling Conversation this week about what information my health record will possibly keep online. Now that we've got three months to opt out of the plan, I'm wondering what parents are thinking they'll do. Uh, Because I'm torn. Recently, only in the last couple of weeks, my father had an accident in another state. He has pre-existing health conditions that, and he needed surgery. And so the anxiety levels of all of us stuck back here at home while he was about to undergo surgery were enormous. And I felt like 
my health record in that instance would have been incredible peace of mind for us as well as his surgeons. Uh, but then you hear a lot about the possibility of your physio having your mental health records or your employer somehow getting access to things you don't want them to see. Um, Seamus, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, look, there are so many sort of people in the whole technology community that are really quite sort of worried about the whole thing, quite honestly. And I think the biggest issue has been how poorly the government has been explaining who will be able to have access, how it will be controlled. Um, it's those sorts of issues that I think right now, when it comes to my own family, we're sort of taking a bit of a, a weight approach and, and wanting a bit more kind of answers, you know, when it comes to that sort of whole process. We've got until October, and I think it's right that people are really putting pressure on the government to say you can't just wave your hands in a vague sense and tell people it's all going to be fine, you don't have anything to worry about, we promise, when so many of the, the details of how it's being implemented essentially mean that almost any government agency without any kind of a warrant or any kind of a, you know, a formal process of request can, can just get access to it. Uh, and, and it's just really, you know, every time they queried on it, like Ariel's done some really good reporting on it. It's definitely worth checking in on her ABC reports where the more that she asks, the more they sort of say, oh, but, you know, well, we're going to make sure that's covered in the guidelines. It's like, but, well, why isn't that written into the way the, the law is being changed? Because this whole my health record system was started as an opt-in system in the past. And then they kind of went, oh, not many people have opted in. So so let's change it to an opt-out system. And that's where suddenly it's like, hang on, wait, now you're demanding that everybody has to sort of say no. And then some people are even through this process finding that they never opted in, but they do already have a record now. And this is the kind of thing where it's like, well, hang on a minute, like the system is already seemingly broken in some ways when people didn't even say they wanted one, but they've discovered they have one when they've gone to opt out. But exactly on the flip side, like you say, I think when there are people in your family who have pre-existing conditions, have complicated medical problems, it absolutely makes sense for those sorts of people where you don't want to have to explain to every single doctor you ever meet, or if you're in an emergency room or something, you know, the number of times you hear stories of people saying the doctors will look at me like I was making it up, you know, like I, I'm sick of explaining this for 15 minutes every time I see someone else. Um, so there's so many cases where it could be valuable. And that's where I think giving us the right answers is the important thing at this point so that people can feel confident with it. How do you feel about it, Amy? Yes, I'm I'm waiting. I'm going to wait, mostly because my initial reaction was, of course, whatever, go for it. I don't have anything to hide. But then I thought about one of my children in particular who's had some early on mental health support that she needed. And I just, I'm worried about how that might show up later on in her life. I don't want that to stigmatize her in any way. I don't want her potential employer on her first job at McDonald's or wherever it is to have to know about these things. So I am going to wait. But I do have to say that in my own experience, I have um, a chronic disease and I find it super frustrating that nobody talks to each other, mm. that the chiropractor I see doesn't talk to the acupuncturist that I see, that the GP didn't know that the acupuncturist has done that and given me these herbs. So I, I hope that we can fix it so we can trust it because in my own experience, as you said, Seamus, I've had to re-explain myself so many times. So it would be nice for it to all be in one place, but it'd have to be super secure. 
and make sure it's not used in the wrong way. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, we've definitely online, people have been saying similar things. Um, Terry Andrea says there are enormous potential benefits to those with chronic and complex diseases who see many different specialists, but it also exposes those with the most vulnerabilities to breaches of confidentiality. It's too late after the event to see who has accessed your records when you can do nothing about undoing it. I would not want employers, insurance companies or lawyers to have access to my private health information and use it against me. And um, and the insurance thing is what gets me because I remember looking at insurance um, policies in the past and there being these terrible loopholes if you'd um, asked for support uh, for mental health issues post-pregnancy and losing benefits that way. And and insurance in particular is one of those things that so many people don't understand. So we could have that blase. I also had that attitude of, oh, how bad can it be? And the benefits must outweigh the risks. But then you look at things like that and you think, actually, if someone isn't on top of that, that can really damage your, your own experience with supporting your family. Yeah, I think there's so many things people don't know about the way the insurance industry works where, you know, where if you're applying for a policy, you know, they they will essentially ask you if you have ever, you know, had X, Y, Z. But that's even gotten to the point where if you do one of those like online DNA test type things where you get, you know, info back on your ancestry, but it also might flag things like potential for certain illnesses. Nowadays, insurers will ask if you have ever done one of those tests and you have to disclose if you have, you know, and suddenly there's another thing that they can kind of use against you to, yes. to decide that they don't want to help you. So it's so many of these things around that record keeping where it does, it feels like, you know, that the government should set this up in a way that means it is all about helping the citizens of our country, not it's all about making sure that they can use this information in other ways that we never intended it to be used. Do you think that pressure is going to be uh, come to bear for them? Do you think that um, because there's been so much media and concerns that they will have to step up to the plate and provide more assurances? I, I feel like the pressure kind of has to stay on. I think, you know, the you know recent history of, you know, of politics is that they delay and delay and hope that the nuisance factor goes away and it's only if it doesn't that they sort of say, okay, well, maybe we should actually do something, you know, or it might even be that case of, you know, of if if you do not feel like you've got the information you want, then maybe the default position should be recommended to just opt out mm. so that then maybe we get to that point where they say almost everybody's opted out. So we need to do something to encourage people to actually use the system. Mm, good idea. I'm Siobhan Hunt. You're listening to the Parent Panel on Kindling Conversation, where we invite two parents into the studio to get their thoughts on the stories and events of the week. Today, I'm joined by Amy Taylor Cabaz, who's a coach, author, and author of Happy Mama, and Seamus Byrne, who's the editor of Beyond at Science Alert. Next, we're going to talk about playground etiquette. Is there a way of disciplining someone else's child? You spanked a child? Well, what am I supposed to do? She thinks that the child is evil. I just can't stand the frustration of doing nothing. Ah, a classic conundrum. As my kids are getting older, playdates without parents are becoming a regular thing. And recently on school holidays, I had one little girl come and spend the day with us. And she was delightful. She was gorgeously behaved. But I couldn't help thinking... (laughs) 
what if one day I get the rat back? You know, the one that is going to run around on the ferry and yell and scream and I'm going to get evil looks from other parents <laughs> or the one that might fight with my child or hit them or, you know, I, I think it's, it's one of those situations that um, possibly parents who go to a lot of playgrounds might come across when another person's child might do something wrong. Um, but I'm just wondering if you guys have had any experience with this, either, either when your children were in that playground age, um, when they were little or at school when you've had play dates. Amy, what are your thoughts on uh, disciplining other people's children? We have had experience with this um, and not to get too detailed, it wasn't a comfortable conversation and actually ended in the friendship not really going forward. So, um, Your I'm, friendship with the parents or yes. the kids? Right. So I'm going to be on very careful fronts. with yeah. this. But <laughs> what I, in thinking about what I've learnt through that. I think for us and my husband and I spent a lot of time talking about this, we felt like it was really important for our children to see that we that it's okay to stand up for yourself and say, actually, we don't do that here. You know, mm. actually, do you want to try again? Because that seemed like it didn't really work. Or maybe we could all just find a new game. And to um, Because before this um, situation... I was more worried about what the parent would think of me and I was really concerned about myself and what someone would think about me. And then I realized that I have these little eyes watching and part of my role is to show them that even if it's an uncomfortable conversation, you need to stand up and say, that made me really sad, that upset me, whatever it is. So the way I approach it now, after learning the hard way, <laughs> I have to say, is that, yeah, I do say something um, very kindly and maybe just suggest a different way with the child. And if I feel like it's not going very well, I'll talk to the parent about it. But it is awkward and it doesn't always work out well. But at the end, it's my kid that I'm most concerned about and I want them to learn that, okay, sometimes... These things are really uncomfortable, but we have to say something. It doesn't sound like you were yelling. I, I no. know that in a long time ago, um, one of our family friends yelled at my daughter, and it was actually one of my husband's friends, and um, she came running crying to me. And I said, what happened? And he said, oh, it was all right. She was doing the wrong thing. And I disagreed with that because for me... Discipline is not about yelling. It's not about shaming. This guy was really big. Mm. She's tiny. Um, so it made me think, so what you're talking about, although I know I'd feel uncomfortable if you had to speak like that to one of my children, I'd be like, she's still, she's guiding. She's not doing this in a way that I would find harmful for my child. Um, it is an awkward conversation though, Seamus. Have you, you're nodding your head, yeah. have you had to oh, do yeah. it too? Oh yeah, a couple of times, yeah, on sort of both, you know, on the boy's side and the girl's side sort of now and then. And I think the, the approach I've tried to take is kind of the like stern, sarcastic uncle kind of vibe <laughs> is the best way I can describe it because it's that idea of instead of trying to think, well, if it was my kid doing this, yeah, I'd be sort of, you know, a whole different version of myself. It is like kind of playing this other role. I almost try to say, I'm like, really? Like, is this the kind of thing we're, we're doing now? You know, like mm. to almost make it an open question of like, this is the path you're about to take in my house. Are you, are you sure this is where you want to go? You know, and that like, kind of puts it back on <laughs> them for a moment. You that to me and I don't, I don't even know what they're going to do and I don't want to do it. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I think it, and like that has worked quite well. And again, it is ultimately it's 
trying to treat them like, well, you're human and let's have a moment to just stop and think about what's happening right now, you know, and that it's then within that frame very clear that this is not anything that I'm happy with. You know, and we've had that in like in a situation with a sleepover, you know, where you kind of think, okay, you're here until the morning. So are we going to be calling somebody to actually get you to go home? You know, clearly your parents aren't going to want to come and get you at 11 o'clock at night, you know. Um, but yeah, I found it's actually quite good because it, it does sort of try to also respect that idea that they can make a decision, you know, about what kind of a person they want to be. Do they want to make sure that, you know, some will sort of say like, well, you know, there's a good chance that you'll never be coming to hang out here again if you kind of, go, you know, if we keep doing this sort of thing. And it just tries to create that thing of going, we're having a lot of fun here. You know, you're pushing it too far. And do you want to just dial it back or are we just going to have to draw a line? And I think it's been really, really positive. And after that, I mean, Amy, you mentioned that occasionally you've had to talk to the parents after something like that has happened where um, you might have used your own way of talking to the child and setting the boundaries. Do you then go back and say to your pa- their parents, look, um, just thought you'd like to know this is what happened. This is how I dealt with it. From from my one there, I think we, yeah, when the kids have sort of turned around, we'll often actually make a kind of, almost make a point of talking to the parents about how, you know, how everything's been really great and kind of give them that trust to sort of say, you know what, like we sorted this out ourselves, didn't we? And therefore we don't, we never have to mention it again. And if it goes the other way, then, you know, then that's the kind of case where you go, there are a couple of problems, you know, and something like that, so that they then might have to, exp- you know, again, no details. So they then just have to have that conversation themselves. And maybe part of that is that actually their parents like, oh, we don't care. You know, it's like, I, it's hard for you to know. I don't want to necessarily have to have that fight unless, like you say, it went too far. But we've thankfully not had that sort of a problem. Yeah, because parents, like you mentioned, that the friendship for you didn't go forward because parents can be really sensitive. I mean, they do say even in a situation of bullying, never approach the other parent, try and get someone else involved. But when you're talking about playdates or you're just in the playground, you don't have an intermediary. So it's tough, isn't it? And also, you're coming to it with all of your emotions. This is the thing, you know, perhaps if if it's not just we're talking about annoying behaviour or something like that, but if it is a little bit more rough or a little bit more picking on them or bullying, then your emotions around that issue are also triggered. And so that's actually when things get a little bit wobbly, is that you're coming to it with your baggage, the parent is triggered because their kid's now been painted in that light. And yeah, it's it's dangerous territory if you're not very careful about how you handle it. Oh, there's some words of warning. You're listening to the Parent Panel on Kindling Conversation. I'm Siobhan Hunt. My guests today are Amy Taylor-Kabaz, author and founder of Happy Mama, and Seamus Byrne, editor of Beyond at Science Alert. In just a moment, uh, you can't tell this is from me. I really need to know how to control the toy intake in my house. I'll be asking our guests about that shortly. Thirty-six. Counted them myself. Thirty-six? But last year, last year, I had thirty-seven. Yeah, 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 well, some of them are quite a bit bigger than last year. I don't care how big they are. 
Father, this is what we're going to do. He said, when we go out, we're going to buy you two new presents. How's that, pumpkin? <laughs> Thankfully, I don't have a Dudley Dursley in my family, <laughs> but we do have a lot of toys. And I don't think there's many days that don't go by where they ask me when they're going to get another one. Um, and every six months or so, I wade into their toy room and attempt to tidy it up. But they are both little hoarders. They refuse to let me throw anything out or recycle any of their toys. I know. I know I'm the parent. I should just step in there and do something. But this week on The Conversation, there was an article about how parents are starting to give gift cards instead of um, toys. And I'm wondering how you manage the influx of toys in your house, um, or if you like me and have absolutely no strategy, um, or if uh, you would be appreciative for someone giving you a gift card or something instead of a toy. Amy? I'm really strict on toys in our house, <laughs> only because I hate clutter. I um, it, it, it makes I can't invite you over anymore. <laughs> it just makes me feel anxious. I I just so my poor children have just been forced from the beginning. Um, we live in a tiny terrace in the inner west of Sydney. We don't have a toy room. I don't need. We have one box in the lounge room, and if it spills over, then I'm cleaning it out. I mean, obviously in their bedroom Do they, they have, have toys as well. One box between the. Th- three of them. Yeah. <gasps> You're amazing. <laughs> but under their beds they've got other things. Like so their rooms are pretty full, but outside of their bedroom, I'm not having it in my space. I know I'm really strict about no, it. No, no, this is admiration <laughs> that you can see in my face, not I horror. Just... Admiration. Also, my kids the, the the part that stresses me out in our house the most is actually the craft corner because my kids are really crafty more than toys. So it's that craft corner that's overflowing with a gazillion half-dried textures and all of that that actually gives me heart palpitations when I look at it. So um, my tip, Siobhan, for you, my beautiful friend, is that do it when they're not around. I never, ever, ever clean out the toys when they're around. I go in and I I literally have a two-phased approach. (laughs) I go in and I take away all the stuff that I know that they're not interested in anymore and I put it in the cupboard. And if after a month they haven't asked for it, which occasionally they'll say, Mummy, where's that... Batman, Spider-Man thingy that was climbing down the wall, whatever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know where that is. And if they haven't asked for it after the month, it goes to the salvos. Mm. So I, I never do it with them around, ever. Okay, that's And they never good notice it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Seamus, I know your kids are a bit older. Have they moved on to smaller? Nope. No. Nope. Oh man. Yeah. Look, it's it's a constant battle. Uh, I think our son is a little bit less on the hoarder side, so he's a bit more chill about that whole process. Uh, but yeah, our, our daughter is very, very like she has this whole sort of love of crafting, sort of like you were saying, Amy, and and that can then really bring in that sort of hoarding instinct to a whole different level because you know it's like little pipe cleaners and any tiny thing. She's got a drawer. She keeps kind of just throwing things in because she might use them one day. Sounds and like me. <laughs> that is a hard process to kind of manage, but we we try to manage a bit of a one in one out type policy. You know, so if if she decides she really really wants this new stuffed toy thing or whatever, and she's got lots of stuffed toys, then it's like okay, well, well, what other one is going to go? And that's that moment. She's like. <gasps> What do you mean I have to choose? Don't <laughs> you know, make it's like Sophie's choice. Of yeah, toys. <laughs> like there are there are tears. So yeah, every few months, um, you know, and hopefully, yeah, we try not to do it too often. But yeah, my wife will often have a big session with our daughter where 
they'll sort of say, okay, look, we do need to start just clearing up, particularly when it is just the random things that she might have made. But again, there's sort of so much of that emotion attached. I made this thing. And it's like, yeah, but are you really going to keep it forever? You know, and I, yeah. I'm way too empathetic because my phone. <laughs> I don't know. Should I admit this live on air? Um, yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, when I, my parent, right before or after I got married, so I've been married 10 years now, so I was in my 30s, and my mum and dad were about to move to another place, and they had these toys. This is before any of us had kids. They took out our toys from when we were children. And mum said, can you just go through and see which ones we can get rid of and which ones we should keep? for when you have kids. And apparently my brother and sister just walked in and went, yeah, just get rid of them. And I walked in and I went, oh my God, there's Gizmo and there's, no, and and my parents are just looking at me going, you're not serious. But now my children do play with those toys. Having said that, that is not a solution for us. No, yeah. you're doomed, beautiful. I am Because <laughs> if you can't get rid of your own toys from the childhood, I'm sorry, we have bigger problems here. It, <laughs> it has been lovely to have our kids. Some, you know, there's a few of those select things that my wife and I have kept around. It is lovely when you have that moment of handing something over. Um, but also, you know, the gift cards don't necessarily solve the problem. Ultimately, the kid's still going to go and buy something. That's what I So you've too. got to find your solution, not just in the whole idea of a gift card. Yeah, and you also you've got... Less control over what kind of plastics they buy with their gift card. Another topic for another time. (laughs) You're listening to the Parent Panel. Up next, your biggest but well-intentioned cooking disaster. Well, this is a disaster. I can't cook, can I? You are better than that. You are a cook. I'm not a cook. Um, <laughs> when it comes to the kitchen, I'm a bit out of my depth. I'm starting to think this whole show is about my failings as a parent. <laughs> anyway, last week I did. I took some time out to hang out at home um, to be with my daughter while she was on school holidays, and of course decided to set myself the challenge of becoming a domestic goddess in one week alone, and it almost killed me, and I certainly wasn't successful in the cooking department. Just ask my husband. I um, have a love of the slow cooker, but have very rarely made something delicious out of it. I saw a recipe for hearty chicken soup. I thought, how can you go wrong? Uh, It was a pain in the butt to make because I had to um, skin all the chicken drumsticks. I had to do it before we went to Luna Park for the day. So that morning I'm skinning. Disgusting. I hated doing it. Then I realized I'd forgotten one of the ingredients. So I bundled the kids into the car, went off, got the ingredient, came back, put it all in, going, walking out the door going, I am the best. Spent too much money at Luna Park, went, I'm not coming home early. Let's just hope the slow cooker doesn't, you know, burn the house down. Get home. My husband takes one look at it and he says, kids aren't going to eat that. It's too bitsy. Let's blend it. And never, people, never blend chicken because you end up with chicken chowder. And as soon as it looked like that, you should have seen his face. He's like, oh, I'm not eating that. <laughs> Didn't it? No, there's no preamble. I'm not eating that. And uh, I <laughs> I was heartbroken because I was thinking, no, I'll eat it. And I tried it. It was really bland. And I had thought at the beginning that I was such a good mum because there was, it was, um, I'd bought the expensive stock. I'd got the extra ingredients. There were veggies. There was meat. It all, all of it ended up in the bin. Please tell me something like this has happened to you. Uh, Every day. (laughs) (laughs) 
You're looking at someone who has been a vegetarian for more than 20 years, but her children need to eat meat. Don't send me messages about this. They actually have (laughs) had iron problems, and so I am feeding them meat. But I have no idea how to cook meat. When I left home, I was already a vegetarian, so I have never cooked meat that I then have eaten. Yeah. Along come my children who love spaghetti bolognese and chicken nuggets and all of these things that every single night I just kind of close my eyes and hold my nose (laughs) and go, okay, I think that's it. (laughs) And so... So I watch them every night just because I can't taste it myself. (laughs) Watch them and the poor thing, sometimes they're like chewing this meat like it's rubber. And they're so kind. They, Especially my middle child, she always looks at me with these big eyes and says, Mummy, we know you've done a really good job and you've tried really hard. My children patronise you. That's always a lovely thing. And I'm like, oh, God, is it really bad again? That is my my experience of cooking for my children, the poor things. Oh, well, that makes me feel a lot better. Thank you, Amy. Seamus, it's your turn. Yeah, look, I think the the biggest thing for me has always just been that process of trying to think oh look we'll just extend out like add a little bit of a spice or a you know oh we'll put lemon on that thing and and then just that moment when you've you've tried but you kind of know it you know it's that first time you tried something you know it's not quite perfect but then you you get that look of just like like you can see they're trying to do their best to eat it but they don't really like it really polite family they are really polite i've got video foot the other thing i cooked was fish last week because no one in my family eats fish i have video footage of both my children attempting a tiny bite of salmon and looking at me going that's disgusting (laughs) (laughs) on camera your kids at least they try yeah, Gosh. we've trained them well, you yeah. know. It it's is. fear. <laughs> it's just fear. <laughs> yeah, they know they've gotten out with me because they know how I'm not so great with the kitchen. Well, guys, thank you for making me both feel better, finally. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and thank you for coming on the show. Thank Cheers. you. That was Amy Taylor-Kabaz, who is a mindfulness coach, author, founder of Happy Mama, and is uh, launching new episodes for Bedtime Explorers this coming week called Magic Animals. It's going to be amazing. And Seamus Byrne, editor of Beyond at Science Alert. You've been listening to The Parent Panel, a Kindling Kids radio podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to leave a review and share it with your friends. The Parent Panel, new episodes every Friday.